0: Ireland's child sexual abuse problem is not something we've dealt with and don't have to worry about anymore. It's not just about historical abuse, like we've been learning took place in Blackrock College. It's pervasive, as Maeve Lewis from the support and advocacy group One in Four says.
1: We've come a huge way in Ireland in relation to violence against women. We still really haven't tackled the whole issue of child sexual abuse. And I think people, policymakers, legislators sort of recoil because it is such a difficult area.
0: One in four has experienced a huge jump-seeking its services after the BlackRock revelations.
1: The men contacting us want answers. How did this happen? How were the abusers protected? Who knew about what was happening?
0: I'm Aideen Finnegan and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, how can we deliver justice for victims but also prevent child sexual abuse in all walks of life? In the wake of revelations of historical sexual abuse at the Spiriton-run Blackrock College, the support service One in Four says it has been inundated with calls from men, many of them who are only disclosing abuse for the first time. The group offers psychotherapy to adult survivors of child sex abuse and its CEO is Maeve Lewis. Maeve, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aideen. If we can start with that most recent story about the Spiritans, so the number of allegations made about priests abusing children in schools run by them, it's now at about 300. And it shouldn't come as a shock that there should be victims in what are seen as elite schools. But I suppose people are surprised that it has taken so long for stories to emerge, given the scandals of recent decades, which presumably would have signalled to victims from all backgrounds that they too could come forward. Why do you think it has taken so long?
1: It's very hard to say, Dean. I mean, you know, we've had huge revelations, for example, of abuse in uh, the residential industrial schools. We've always been dealing with men who were sexually abused in Christian Brothers schools. But there is something about the revelations in uh, fee-paying private schools that really seems to have shocked people, but also encouraged now men to come forward. I don't know, is it that those men had a great deal of loyalty to the school, uh, that there was a code of honour, that, you know, people didn't speak about things that have happened. But there has been an avalanche of people coming forward to one in four for psychotherapy and for our advocacy services where we support people to engage in the criminal justice system. But I know in all the sexual violence services, all the rape crisis centres, the same thing is happening. So once the Ryan brothers bravely spoke out on the documentary on one, that seemed to trigger people to say, I've kept silent long enough. And so many of the men who mainly were aged from sort of 40 up to their 60s who have spoken to us, were disclosing for the first time they had never even told their wives, their um, their children, their friends. And they described, you know, the terrible impact the sexual abuse experience had on their lives, um, on their relationships, on their parenting, on their career prospects. So it is really tragic that it is so hard for abuse survivors to speak out when the abuse happens, when they're children, but equally when they move on into adulthood and are still paralysed, really, by a sense of personal shame, feeling often that they're the only person this has happened to, that there's something about them that provoked the abuse. And when a survivor speaks publicly, that then tells the other survivors, you are not alone, you are not the only one this happened to, and it gives them the freedom, perhaps, to disclose and to reach out for help for the first time.
0: You mentioned in your annual report that you launched the other day for 2021 that you had 61 people on a waiting list and that equates to a period of waiting for them for each person of about 15 months. Has that number jumped since the spirit and story broke?
1: Well, the day the spirit and story broke, we had 45 people on the waiting list for psychotherapy and we had no waiting list for our advocacy service. As of Today, which is nearly four weeks later, the waiting list for psychotherapy has jumped up to well over 100 and there are calls wow. coming in every day. And for the very first time, we have about 70 people on a waiting list for the advocacy service, people who want to um, make a complaint to the Gorthy.
0: That's difficult when you know so many people have made that brave step to reach out and, and to say, oh, we will have to wait. Um, Is there a difference in the type of caller post-Black Rock? Like I suppose in that case, we're dealing with a lot of middle class men who usually portray themselves as being in control of their lives and that pretense might be eating them up, I guess.
1: Yeah, now I would have to say we've had calls from the Spirit and Survivors, but we've equally had calls from boys who are men who attended Jesuit schools, Dominican schools, Vincentian schools, other fee-paying schools. And of course, this has also triggered people who are abused in different contexts. For example, about half of our clients at any given time have been abused in their own families. So we've had those calls as well. Um, the calls in the past few weeks have been predominantly men, but probably about 30% have been women as well, mainly abused in their own families.
0: Would you be worried about people who have to be on a waiting list for 15 months that something could happen to them?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, last year, one in four of the people we met told us they had made an attempt on their own lives at some point in their life. So there is always a concern. Last year, we were given extra funding by Tusla to employ a waiting list case manager. And that has alleviated the concern to some extent because she can provide constant contact with them, uh, some crisis counselling, really provide a safe holding space until they actually can be allocated to a psychotherapist.
0: Okay. As we know, you know, there have been calls for an inquiry and the Taoiseach has said, you know, they'd have to consider very carefully how they'd set that up because previous inquiries haven't always delivered satisfactory results for victims. And, you know, we know there's been heavy criticism of the Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation report, for instance. Now, a restorative justice programme has been established by the Spiritans themselves But you're at the coalface. What do you think victims need? Like, what do they want? Is it accountability, vengeance, just to be heard, state action? Like, what is it?
1: Most of the people who have contacted us in the past few weeks want action. Um, Where the abuser is still alive, we're supporting a lot of people to make a complaint to the Gardaí, which would be the start of the criminal justice process. Where the abuser is dead... The men contacting us want answers. How did this happen? How were the abusers protected? Who knew about what was happening? Why were priests moved from school to school when there were already concerns about them? Who is responsible? Where is the accountability? So I really believe it would be a very missed opportunity if the government decided to open an inquiry only into the Spurgeon schools. I think there needs to be inquiry into all the fee-paying schools. In fact, in truth, I think there needs to be an inquiry into every organisation in the country where children congregate because we've had big scandals in the Scouts. Just this week, um, a report has gone into one of the voluntary ambulance service. Swim Ireland have had their difficulties. There's been uh, people convicted within the GAA. But I, to be to be realistic it will probably be confined to the fee-paying schools. Now, I mean, we do have very good legislation um, in terms of establishing commissions of inquiry. And I think the Ryan report, which dealt with abuse in the industrial schools, is a very good model in that it looked at numerous congregations who were running the industrial schools. Um, there was a chapter in each one of them. Um, it allowed, it had a confidential Mission where people could just go and tell their story, and then a uh, an, uh, another strand where people actually gave evidence about what happened. That report took about seven years to complete, but it was such a groundbreaking report that the time was well spent, and it did, I think, alert everybody in Ireland as to what was happening to some of the most vulnerable and dispossessed children in Irish society. So I think that may well be a model the government should be considering.
0: What did it do that was so groundbreaking?
1: Well, I can still remember um, the day that report came out and in the Irish Times, for example, Patsy McGarry had a 25-page supplement. It got extensive coverage, not just in Ireland, but around the world. And it really woke us up to the failures of the Irish state to protect children because while the orders were running the um, most of the, the industrial schools, uh, state, you know, Department of Education inspectors were going into those schools. Why did they not see anything? Uh, why were the concerns of some of the parents of the children in those schools not listened to? Very similar questions. And it told us about how the different congregations... Uh, really prioritised the reputation of the congregation above the needs of children so that, again, uh, Christian brothers and nuns were moved from place to place and continue to abuse with impunity. I mean, as a result of that, we've had the children's referendum. Uh, TUSLA has been established. It was, the child protection function was taken away from the HSE where, you know, they were inundated. Um, the Children's First Act has been introduced, which introduced mandatory reporting in this country for the first time. And uh, provision of uh, funding for services such as one in four have certainly increased. Uh, it's still not adequate, but it is certainly increased. And I think there is a much greater public awareness. But People in general, I think, sometimes think this can only happen to children in deprived communities um, where there are obvious problems within a family. And I think what has really woken people up with the spirit and disclosures is, is that this can happen in any family across the country um, and that there are still problems in I suppose, uh, being vigilant and um, putting in place good protocols and making sure that children are safe when they go to school.
0: And in the case of a lot of these men, the abusers are dead. How can they get justice when that has happened? How, how can getting answers help that healing journey?
1: Well, we've a lot of experience of supporting survivors to engage with religious congregations, with dioceses, And if the abuser is dead, um, it is still possible to meet uh, senior people from a congregation or a bishop, for example, and for the bishop or the congregational leader to acknowledge the harm that's been caused, to apologise. That's really important. That apology really matters. Um to consider whether there should be compensation, for example, to pay for the psychotherapy costs, um, medical expenses and so on. And that can be a very positive experience for the survivor if they are meeting um, men and women who are not defensive, who are accepting the reality of what has happened and to understand the ongoing trauma that has been caused. And I mean, for an awful lot of people, the abuser is dead. For people where the abuser is alive, um, it is very clear a lot of the men contacting us want to contact the Gorthy.
0: I'm sure there's no one size fits all, but most people probably deal with the same issues. You know, you mentioned earlier the guilt and the shame. Like what sort of, what is the lifelong impact?
1: There is that deep rooted sense of shame. Um, For example, yesterday I had an email from a client who's a Abuser had been convicted the previous day, supported by one of our staff. And she said she had woken up yesterday morning feeling light for the first time in her life and that the shame and the distress had dissipated because of the public acknowledgement of the crimes that had been committed against her when she was a child. So that would be part of it. But a lot of our clients present they have um, been depressed all their lives, high anxiety, Sadly, some people um, try to deal with the distress by maybe becoming addicted to alcohol or other substances, um, high levels of eating disorders. And I think people don't sometimes realise that the impact of abuse doesn't stop when the abuse stops. It does continue throughout a person's life. And... um, impact as I've said that has on people's relationships on their parenting on every aspect of their life. It essentially means somebody is not living life to their full potential and that is why it's wonderful to work in an organisation like One in Four because we really do see people move through a process of recovery where it's not that the abuse will never have happened but it is no longer contaminating every aspect of their lives.
0: And how does it impact their marriages and their parenting? How how is it that far-reaching?
1: Well, if somebody has been sexually abused, uh, very often they will feel there was something about them that provoked the abuse. They will very often, uh, to to say they have low self-esteem would be, you know, it it, it goes way beyond that. Contaminated by the abuse, uh, difficulties with trust, difficulties with intimacy, with sexual intimacy. With parenting, it's often a terror that they don't know how to appropriately parent if they give a child a hug. Is that okay? Is that appropriate? Bathing a child, all those types of things. Often not able to, again, form close relationships with their children, keeping a distance, always afraid somebody's going to find out this terrible secret about them.
0: We'll have more from Maeve after this short break. I didn't realise that one in four also helps offenders. So you have 65 in your programme at the minute. And I do, I'll come back to that later because I want to discuss that more. But maybe just briefly, you might be able to explain a bit about who these people are. Are they, are they all men? Are they people who've been convicted?
1: Yeah, our offender prevention programme, which we see as a core child protection programme, um, because if people aren't working with offenders, they will go on offending often right through their lives. So last year, 65 um, men attended the programme. We occasionally have women coming forward. And it's important to say that the survivors who come to us every year, six, seven percent have been abused, sexually abused by a woman. And I think that's something that's not generally accepted either. Um Most of the survivors who come to us have not been convicted and probably never will be convicted because their victim doesn't want to make a complaint to the Gorthy. About half will have been convicted. Last year, about half the offenders were um, guilty of online offences. And again, we tend to minimise online sexual offending because... We talk about child pornography, equating it to adult porn. And we forget that every single image, every single video is actually a crime scene. It is a real child being sexually exploited, often in incredibly vile and um, violent ways. This is an epidemic. It worries us because a lot of the men who come to us, particularly the young men, the sort of 18 to 25 year olds, will have begun their path to contact offending by being exposed to images of child sexual exploitation online when they're very young, at puberty, 11, 12, 13, and become sexualised to those images and then maybe go on and and commit a contact offence. So we have a specialist group now for online offenders. And during the year, we had a person from Interpol over at a conference and he was speaking about online offending throughout the world. It was one of the most frightening presentations I've ever heard in my life because he was basically saying this is a huge industry and right across the world, police forces do not have the resources or sometimes the skills to detect the people who are creating these images and drawing other people into their networks um, of child exploitation.
0: it's extremely disturbing. And you, of course have, you know, a vast amount more than the average person and even you were disturbed by this presentation.
1: Not just disturbed, frightened, actually, frightened.
0: How many children do we think get caught up in this worldwide every year?
1: We have no idea because the images are so pervasive. But again, sadly, um, there certainly are instances where Irish children have been sexually abused online and those images are being throughout the world. But a lot of the children being abused are coming from developing countries, very vulnerable children, um, Eastern European children, often from very poor backgrounds, and adults are being paid to allow their children to be abused in that way. So it is really a vile is the only word. It is a vile industry. Yeah, we
0: don't even have to look abroad for that because we had a case in the courts very in the last couple of weeks of Somebody who was convicted for paying women to to give him... Access to their children. How does that happen?
1: Aideen, if we knew that, we've no idea of the circumstances of those women who I believe will be coming before the courts as well. But we can assume they were targeted, that they were in some way vulnerable. And um, this man was able to exploit that to gain access to their children. I'm not excusing for a minute what the mothers did, but, um, you know, we don't really know the answer.
0: Mm. So the, the offenders that you have on your programme, uh, half of them were convicted. So they're kind of there by force, by the conditions of their their conviction?
1: Well, uh, you know, not half of them would be convicted. A lot of them will be uh, going through the criminal justice system. And I would say their motivation for coming to one in 4 in the first place is to be able to show a trial that they're taking their behaviour seriously and are attempting to. To, to, change. to change yeah mm. but when they engage in the programme very often then they will become genuinely engrossed it is very a very psychotherapeutic approach for the others who are not convicted and will never be convicted usually there's been a disclosure so their family are telling them you have to go and do something about this and again they engage um Usually at the beginning, we'll hear about some of the offending. And then as the two year programme continues, we'll hear about even more. Uh, But I think our success rate has been very good. Um, People are generally with us for two years and then we have an aftercare programme for a further two years. To the best of our knowledge, there's only been one or two instances where somebody is re-offended. But of course, I have to say that is to the best of our knowledge. Let's put it this way. They haven't been caught again.
0: Mm. And so the people who are on that list, are they still a danger to children while you're treating them?
1: I think it is much less likely that they would prove a danger once they engage in the programme. But sadly, we now have a waiting list for that programme. Currently, there's 26 people on that waiting list and they are men out there who are willing at least to engage and who will probably have to wait about 18 months to get on that programme and who are definitely posing a risk to children in the intervening period.
0: And Maeve, those people who are on the waiting list, like, surely you should be able to say we need funding so that we can take these people immediately because they are an imminent danger to children.
1: Aideen, a lot of my job is seeking funding and funding is scarce. Um, We have endless numbers of social workers ringing us, trying to refer people onto that programme and we're having to say, I'm sorry. So yes, of course we're seeking funding, but...
0: How could it it's not be not, forthcoming though? You have such a compelling case for we can we can stop children from being abused if you give us these resources to help these, these potential offenders.
1: Yeah, it is a very compelling case but I mean it is a very compelling case too to provide timely services to survivors um, to provide adequate support for people engaging in the criminal justice system and the reality is resources are scarce. So, I mean, we're very grateful to the funding we receive from the HSC, Department of Justice, TUSLA, but... We are always asking for more. My
0: colleague Patsy McGarry was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago about the, the and abuse story, and he mentioned a, a statistic that two to three percent of the population will abuse. And I'm just like, why does why does child sexual abuse happen? Like it triggers such feelings of revulsion in in most of us. What goes wrong in someone's development that they start to become sexually attracted to children?
1: Well, you know, as our name suggests, the research shows one in four Irish children experience sexual trauma before the age of 18. And that that's old research. And the CSO are currently doing a prevalence study, which hopefully will be published next year. And I would be delighted if all the developments of the last 20 years would show that we have to change our name to one in six or one in eight. But there is some academic research, very recent research coming up with the same figures, one in four. So if we think about that, if one in four children are being sexually abused, there are huge numbers of sex offenders in our society. And what we have to remember is, you know, there there is the sort of stereotype of the dirty old man hiding in the bushes, grabbing children. Children are abused usually by somebody they know within their family, within their community, when they go to school, when they play sports, uh, by people who have access to them. Now, why do people sexually abuse? Again, it's it's very difficult to say. I mean, some of the men on our offender programme will have been abused themselves, about a third. But we must remember that the vast majority, 95, six, seven percent of people who have been sexually abused, will never go on to abuse children. But for most of those men, there will have been some serious adversity in childhood, something like the loss of a parent or maybe other forms of emotional abuse, whatever we find Many of the men come in our programme are also attracted to adults. Many of them are married and have children themselves. So it's something about power. Many of the men in our programme will have very difficulties with, with real intimacy and they will distort their thinking to the point that they will believe what they're doing is not harming the child, that the child is actually enjoying the intimate relationship. So we have to do a lot of work on challenging those type of distortions. Some people, as I said, are led into sex offending by becoming sexualised to images online. And I think that's going to be an increasing problem. So I don't think, Aideen, there's any one easy answer to that question.
0: Mm -hmm. I've often wondered why there's no national campaign to prevent child sexual abuse, because, you know, we have we have aggressive campaigns to drive down road deaths to combat domestic violence, to recycle, to turn our our thermostats down. How is there not a national agency tasked with addressing this scourge, I guess? You know, I don't understand why there isn't a message that says, if you have these feelings, they are harmful and they are wrong. Please get help and here's where you can go.
1: Well, we organised a child safety summit earlier on this year and we invited 60 experts in the field um, to come together to pool our experience and knowledge and to come up with a roadmap to do exactly that a root and branch approach to reducing the incidence of child sexual abuse. Um, so we are now going to be we're, I'm currently looking for funding um, to set up a national task force which would be made up of experts across the statutory services, NGO sector, academics and um, other people who would be involved. And we need, a, first of all, um, a piece of research, an attitudinal research, like Irish people's attitude to child sexual abuse. Why there isn't, as you say, an outcry at, at the high instance. We need exactly as you've said, with offenders to humanise offenders. They're not all monsters, you know, they're damaged human beings who do terrible things. But we need to be create a a culture where people who are having thoughts about children can come forward without it having a huge impact on their their lives. You know, if they haven't actually harmed a child without um, any stigma attached to that and get the help that can be there. There have been I suppose, campaigns like that in places like Germany and in some of the states in the US that have proved very successful, where in the US, for example, in one state, they literally have big road signs up saying, if you're having these thoughts as you go down the highway, you know, here's the number to call. And those are the sort of things we need to do. I mean, we've come a huge way in Ireland and over the course of my working life in relation to violence against women um, and men in relation to domestic violence. We still really haven't tackled the whole issue of child sexual abuse. And I think people and even policymakers, legislators sort of recoil because it is such a difficult area of work and people literally do not what, know what to do. So I hope the task force that um, one in four will be inviting people to join will be the first step in in a way forward to a huge national strategy and focus. And I know people like Bernard Gloucester in Tusla. Um, I know the Minister for uh, Justice and the Minister for Children are both aware of what we're doing and are making very um, positive noises about it.
0: I've heard you speak about before about how we have to stop being bystanders and that Irish society sort of implicitly condones child sexual abuse who are who are the bystanders I'm wondering you know obviously there might be someone in an organization who has suspects something specific about someone and there's a bit of a continuum all the way back down to well everyone knows that guy is kind of creepy and I've heard stories but that could be malicious gossip what do you do you know if, if all you've heard are stories what do you do with that information how do you stop being a bystander
1: well We are all bystanders in a sense, because we all know this is a very, very serious and pervasive problem in Ireland. And yes, it is very difficult to speak out. But I mean, if you have a concern or a suspicion, the thing to do is uh, to ring somewhere like one in four and ask to speak to somebody about it and and tease out what is possible. Or to ring a, a, a duty social worker in Tusla and again, get advice on your concerns. Yes, we don't want um, malicious reports being made. Of course, we don't, because, I mean, to be named as a sex offender is probably one of the worst things that can actually happen to a person and destroy their reputation, especially if it's not true. But we have to ask ourselves, what is it that allows us to stand by knowing how many children are being harmed and whose lives are being destroyed, really? Um so I think we need a big public awareness campaign like we have shown in Ireland that we can have very difficult conversations around the dinner table in relation to same sex marriage, in relation to the repeal the eighth campaign. We need to be having similar conversations. And there are an awful lot of people out there who have been abused, who, as I said, feel paralysed, unable to do anything. How can we support those people to disclose so that other children are safe? Um, How can we wrap a community around somebody who discloses? Because we still have a very strange attitude sometimes to the survivors. We'll have situations where somebody is convicted of sexual abuse and everybody from the parish priest to the, the local school teacher will be offering testimony and testimonials about their character in court. How does that make the victim feel? How does that make the victim feel? And families need a lot of help as well if there is a disclosure, because very often families will be split. It's quite it, it happens that the uh, survivor is actually ostracised, but very often we see in court cases our our client will have maybe a sibling or two supporting them, but the abuse the alleged abuser, if it's a family member, will have three or four family members also supporting them not speaking to the person who's been abused so we have a family program as well and we work with the families of the offenders and people need enormous support when such a disclosure happens because very often the family members have been groomed as well to have a very distorted view of what's appropriate or being able to turn a blind eye to what is going on so there is so much we could do um to make it easier for us to recognize when we have concerns what to do but also to put in place support not just by a psychotherapist but by the entire family and community to the person making the disclosure.
0: Would you like to mention how people can get in touch with you?
1: Yes, people can get in touch with us. Our website is one in 4 dot IE and our phone number is 01 Double six two four zero seven zero. I should say it's not a helpline. It's only open during office hours. And if people need support outside of those hours, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre run the national helpline, uh, which, which people can look up. So that's available twenty four seven.
0: Maeve Lewis, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Aideen. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.